So great to see you today, church. You sound so good worshiping our good and gracious God. Aren't you grateful that in Jesus we indeed are free? Free from the penalty of our sin, free from the power of sin, and free one day from the very presence of sin. Friends, I love you more than you know. So grateful that we could be together on this Lord's Day. If you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5. If you are new with us, my name is Jordan. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and one of our elders here at PVC, and we are in the middle of our ongoing series through the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a fascinating narrative. I hope you've gathered that. This is the sixth sermon, and we land in chapter five. The title of our sermon today is The Reality We're going to see Nehemiah's situation, the rebuke that he's going to offer to the people of God for the erroneous behavior they are demonstrating, and finally, he's going to give them a response. Namely, he's going to give them an example of what they should be doing, and as their leader modeling before them what a child of God should look, act, and think like in the midst of the mess of the situation that really is Nehemiah chapter 5. Many years before Nehemiah came on the scene, God had told his people, if you go after other gods, if you cheat on me, and you want to go after all these little g-gods, I will kick you out of the land. I gave you this promised land. I gave you this land as uh, an offering to you, as a blessing to you. It was full of milk and honey. But he said, if you go after these gods and you rebel against me, then I will punt you out of the land. And that is exactly what he did. They rebelled, they rebelled, they rebelled, and God put them out of the land. Well, finally, after a long slew of events that you could think about for hundreds of years, God providentially brought them to their knees, literally, and they finally returned to their God. And Nehemiah is a book about God putting a passionate pursuit on the heart of a man to lead a rebuilding effort to get these walls back in place around the holy city of Jerusalem that would protect the nation from the brutality of all the other nations. And if you've not been with us, then I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the first five sermons in the book of Nehemiah, because then you'll be up to speed with where we've been, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. In chapter 4, if you notice there, what we noted last week is Nehemiah being the extreme organizer that he was, the great leader that he was, he had the people organized where they lived, working on their portion of the wall, and this thing was beginning to erect before them. And on top of the reality of the challenge of working on the gates of a wall, and I mind you, most of the people that are working on this wall were perfume makers. They were were taking rose petals not long before this and letting them dry out in the Israeli sun and then crushing them and making this beautiful potpourri. And now, put all that down, get your DeWalt hammer, and all of you, you know, we're going to home, we're getting all this stuff. That, that, that was asking a lot. 
from perfume maker to wall builder. I'm not saying that if you like to make perfume, you can't build walls. That's a good thing. That's fine if that's what you do, but most people are going to kind of choose one route or the other. Well, God is asking under the leadership of Nehemiah to do this in their life. And last week, what we saw is they had great opposition against them. Opposition, namely, from the surrounding nations around them that were not excited about these walls going up. Let me tell you how unexcited they were. They cut off trade from them. You know, in, our, in, in the world, nations that get mad at other nations, the way they operate with one another is they say, we're cutting off trade. No export, no import. You, we're not going to help you anymore. And that's what the other nations have said. We're not giving you any more food. We're not exporting anything into the land. And we're going to oppose you. And of course, we know Sambalad and Tobiah and the other governors, they are bringing opposition on the people of God. On top of that is the psychological, emotional anxiety that often sets in when you're seeking to do a good work for the Lord. And just not sleeping like you wish you could and up all hours of the night thinking about things and worrying if you're honest about the work that you've been called to do and all, all that that goes with it, all that, the psychological, the anxiety, the people outside of you, the fact of I've, I've used to make perfume and now I've got to build a wall, all of that is going on. And on top of that, some of these folks who were working day and night with weapons on them were farmers by trade. They've gotten so caught up in the work of the wall that they've been called to, they are now no longer planting crops, so there is no harvest of crops, which means there's no food to eat, which means there's a famine broken out right in the middle of Nehemiah chapter 5. They're doing this great work for God, and, and everything in front of them is screaming at them, abandon the mission. Don't do it. It's too hard. It's too rough. And so the picture from Nehemiah 5 is from the outside, trade's been cut off. From the inside, the farmers are not farming, so there is no food. And so it's a really desperate situation. You could write in your Bible, if you like to write in your Bible, a very desperate situation will be Nehemiah chapter 5. So one of the key things that God intends for us to receive from this text, I believe, as I've prayed and thought through this, is this is going to help us today, friends. Know how God wants us to treat each other when opposition comes against us. What does it look like for a people to persevere in the faith and treat each other in a loving, godly way when there's opposition within and there's opposition without. You know, Jesus taught us, the watching world, when they see the way that we treat each other, they should see love. The way that we love one another, the way that we serve one another, the way we bend over backwards sometimes and, and defy all logic sometimes of helping each other, they should see that the ethic of the Christian community is not the survival of the fittest. That is not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God. That's not how we roll in the kingdom. That's not the ethics of the kingdom. Rather, the ethic of the kingdom is what Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 2, and notice, do nothing. This should mark us. Do nothing. Would you give me that word nothing? Nothing, nothing means nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant yourself. So in light of what Christ has done for us, we are a Christ-centered community family. We are a Christ-centered body. In light of all that He has done for us, our 
delight should be to be him one to another, namely living out the tenets of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. The natural human tendency is not for you to live for the good of others. Did you know that's not your normal bent? Your normal bent is to love you some you. Your normal bent is to do whatever makes you happy, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel like you're excelling in life. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is not that way. It is a kingdom where you and I began to model the very things that the surrounding communities and around us and around the world would say that's foolish. And I just want to say this to you pastorally. For the 145, 50 people that make up our Pleasant Valley Church family, I just want to say that I am so encouraged by all the different ways that we demonstrate Jesus to one another. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, family. God is using you and using me and using us to really demonstrate a lot of this in our life. But I definitely believe the Holy Spirit today is going to confront you lovingly, and He's going to talk to all of us about how we can continue to grow, watch this, in living outwardly toward one another. You're called to live outwardly toward others. So let's pray to that end, and then we're going to hop in. Father, I'm so thankful that, again, Your Word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. And what happens here in Nehemiah 5 is unbelievably relevant to us. God, we, we should not be surprised because that's the way your word is, and we are so thankful that you have given it to us to feast on. So God, would you increase our hunger even as we walk through this text today? Holy Spirit, would you push on us where we need to be pushed on? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you equip us so that we would continue to love one another more and more, that we would be a community here at PVC that would be increasingly marked by our love for one another because we understand your love for us through Jesus Christ was massive. And so we praise you for that. Thank you for the freedom Oh God, that you've given us in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you have your way in our hearts and minds now to the glory of your great name, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want you to see, if you have a bulletin there, is Nehemiah's reality in verses 1 to 5. Nehemiah's reality. Notice, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and with our daughters, we are so many. So, let us get grain that we may eat and keep, literally stay alive. So, in the middle of the opposition, notice, they say, we got a lot of mouths to feed. We got kids sitting at the tables of these Jewish homes, and there ain't nothing to eat. We're out of everything. Crops are gone. Trade's been cut off. We're, we're hungry, and we, we got to do something or we're going to die. And here's how bad it is. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So these hardworking farmers, these aren't lazy people. There are lazy people in the world, and there are lazy people in this text, in this, in this narrative. These are not lazy people. These are people that are working with all that they got, so much so that these farmers are going to sell the only means of sustainable income. 
I mean, their income was the harvest. Their income was the land. Their income was the vineyard by which they would make wine and sell it and make a profit. And they're like, we're going to sell all that because they do what you would do if you were in the situation and your kids weren't eating and there was nothing to eat. You do whatever you got to do. Amen? That's what they're doing. They're doing whatever they got to do. So notice, there were also those who said we're mortgaging fields, vineyards. And then notice, and there were those who said we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So they're not only selling, they're borrowing money to actually pay the taxes that they can't pay because they don't have any money. So they are in massive debt. All because they're doing the will of God. Their lives are devastated. It doesn't get much worse than Nehemiah chapter 5. And it is because they have responded to God's leadership through Nehemiah their faithfulness had led to their own devastation. Now, I don't, know many, I don't know any in our congregation right now that you could say that because you're following the Lord so hard that your life is devastated, that you have nothing to eat, that you're in massive debt. You might be in debt, but you, you're not in massive debt because of this. I don't know anybody. If, if that is you, please tell me. I would love to chat about that, pray about that, talk about that. But I would say for most of us, if you're like honest with us, this is not your reality. And yet, there, when you think about the global church, you think about the global people of God, you think about our brothers and sisters all over the world, they could look at their current reality and they could say, my life is in shambles, my life is in severe opposition and persecution to people around me all all because I have said yes to Jesus, I'm following him where I'm at, and all it's done is cost me dollars, it's cost me my livelihood, it's cost family. There are people in our world, in the global church, that this is their experience. In fact, you know this well, there's two major wars in our world right now. Uh, we have a Russian and Ukrainian war, and God has his remnant of people there. Churches are thriving in the midst of that. Right smack dab in the middle of Ukraine. There's a war, Israeli-Hamas war, where this narrative actually is taking place, is right there where all of that is taking place. We're, we're, we're live here, friends. And yet God has a remnant there. The reports that I'm reading of, of messianic congregations in Israel as these bums and things are coming, e e even in the Gaza Strip, for, it, for congregations there where God has parachuted a people for the glory of His name, even in that context, they are experiencing the pain of what is around them, and yet they're thriving as a people. Which is why, I don't have this on the screen, but you should write Hebrews 13.3 in your margin, which says, remember those, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them, and remember those who are mistreated since they are in the body as well. While those people all over the globe are brothers and sisters that you're going to not meet until the kingdom is consummated and you are in the kingdom of God and I am there, we're going to meet tribe and tongue and nations of people, here's the reality. They're being mistreated right now and they're not part of this congregation uh, locally, but they are part of the universal body of Christ. And one thing that I'm just praying for us, friends, and I'm praying for Jordan, and I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for our congregation, is that God would make us more mindful of the plight of brothers and sisters around the world who've lost everything because of their devotion to Jesus. 
Sadly, most days we are so absorbed in our own lives, we have no mental or emotional energy to think about anybody else but ourselves. But I'm praying that God would increase our intentionality, watch this now, in thinking about the global church. The global church. Now look at verse 5, because this should make your stomach sick. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're in the room, there's times where the Bible is horrifically honest about the reality of a situation. This is one of those times. Because what is happening is these folks are making their children be slaves. And some of the, the daughters are already being enslaved. And this is not the neighboring nations enslaving them. This is their own people. This is their Jewish heritage. Notice, flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Like, we're all supposed to be one here. We're all supposed to be working together on this. We're all supposed to have solidarity in Yahweh, in the Lord. And yet, we've stooped so low that we've told our children, that's it. You are going to slave for the rest of us. This is what it says. I want you to notice, it's not in our power to help it for other men. So the Jews, they're mad at. We can't help it for other men. These are evidently the elite, evidently the powerful, evidently the very influential in the congregation that's gathering here. They're mad at them, but they can't stop them because of their notoriety. Notice they have our fields and our vineyards. So the great horror of Nehemiah 5 is not really the famine. It's not really the other nations who've cut off trade. Really, the horror of Nehemiah 5 is the way they're treating one another. So now, God had already spoken to this right in your margin, Deuteronomy 23, Leviticus 25. God had already, in the Torah, the law, He had already given instruction of how you are to operate. And this is one of the things, do not enslave your children. Do not do it. So this is not just inhumane. They are actually defying God. One commentator said this week, and I quote, he says, what's the use of a rebuilt Jerusalem without a holy people to dwell with her God? What a great question. What's the use of a fancy wall if the people of God's hearts have moved away from their God? What a great, great question. So just to pause here for a minute, and, and rather than look down at our spiritual noses, which we often tend to do when we read a passage like this. We look down our spiritual noses and we say, that is so awful. Rather than feed our own self-righteousness, what if we use this text as a mirror? And, And we looked into the mirror of Nehemiah 5 and let it expose a few things about us, behaviors that we may be manifesting that mirror some of this stuff in our own lives. Number one, Taking advantage of each other. Taking advantage of each other. So I thought about this week giving a a bunch of different ways that we could take advantage of each other as a people, but I thought, no. As I prayed and I thought about it, I thought, no, that's not going to be as helpful as to just let the Spirit of God just let that sit with you. And here's here's the simple question I want you to ask yourself. Am I taking advantage of anyone's kindness at Pleasant Valley Church right now? Am I taking advantage of anyone's kindness at Pleasant Valley Church right now? 
Second of all, another way that we could mirror this is we're being, here's a big word, consumeristic. We're being consumeristic as a congregation. So if you're a guest or you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you, okay? I'm talking to our PVC family. Brother, sister, I want you to think about your relationship to this congregation. Are you a consumer? In other words, when you attend this gathering and when you think about Pleasant Valley Church, do you think about how can I serve her or how can she serve me? Are you a giver or a taker? I understand we're in different seasons of life, and some of us need a lot of taking right now, and that's why we're ready to, to come and do what we got to do. But I'm just talking about your individual mindset. Do you have an entitled mindset? Do you have a sense of somebody owes you something? Are you just here to consume? Third of all, lacking self-denial. Do you deny yourself regularly for the glory of God and the good of this church? As a, as a member, again, if you're a non-Christian, I'm not talking to you. If you're not a member, I'm not talking to you. We're, we're glad you're here. Praise God you're here. Hope you'll always feel welcome to come here. I'm talking to us. One simple question. When, what have you recently done to deny yourself for the good of PVC and the glory of God? What have you done recently? I'm not talking about, year, well, years ago I did. I was part of it. Not, praise God, but we, we're living in today. What have you done recently? for the good of this congregation and the glory of our great God. A portion of the people of God, Nehemiah, they're taking advantage of one another, they're consuming one another, they're walking selfishly, and they're certainly not selfless. And so that's the reality of Nehemiah 5. This demands a rebuke from their leader. Notice verse 6. I was very angry. Again, this is Nehemiah's journal, by the way. He's kind of his musings, he's writing. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So Nehemiah has a right to be angry. Um, friends, this is righteous anger. This is a type of anger that glorifies God. Most of the anger that you and I are familiar with is not righteous because it's based on our kingdom, not God's kingdom. Based on our wants, not God's wants. It, 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 it's, it, it's about our lusts rather than the heart of our God. But friends, I want to remind you, there is a type of anger that should manifest in your life from time to time that is a good thing. It is a godly thing. I won't go into injustices in our day and things that should just infuriate you in a righteous way because the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom is not being hallowed, all right? There are those things. And if you're not angry at some things that you look around, something's wrong with you because you should be angry because the king and his kingdom are being stiff-armed in a number of ways. But I want you to notice, Nehemiah is not going to respond here with a ready-to-rip-people's-heads-off, flying off the handle, like sometimes you and I have done when a situation, I mean, how many, if, if you came up on this situation and you heard about this, do you, I mean, do you think that you might fly off the handle? I mean, I know my personality. I'm sure maybe you know your personality, but for some of us, I don't know that we would have manifested this, what he does next, which notice, I took counsel with myself. Interesting phrase. I thought, in other words, I thought about this. I mean, you could just see him. Like, you ever been really mad before and looking at a situation and there's like steam coming off your head? And you're like, 
<laughs> you're just really upset. That's kind of where he's at. And I think as I read the Hebrew here, I think really what he's doing is, is that's happening, but he backs off and says, let me, let me, five, four, three, two, one. And, and then he says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And notice, I held a great assembly. He brought everybody together, and he said, let's deal with this. Let's talk about this. We, verse 8, as, as, as far as uh, we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Notice, probably everybody is not guilty of this completely, but he just brings them all to account. You know, I think about a sister of ours who is not here this morning, Evelyn Horrocks, because, bless her heart, she's not physically where she used to be, but she told me a story recently about when she used to babysit kids, and, and one day there was like 12 of them running around, and she's, you know, ruling with an iron fist, trying to take care of them, and one of them broke a tree out back, and one of them came in and told everybody else, and she couldn't figure out who did it, so you know what she did? She gave them all a spanking. All 12 of them. She said, because I knew if I just spanked all of them, I wouldn't miss who really did it. That's really what Nehemiah is doing here. He's like, listen, everybody, you're all guilty of this. Some of you may say, well, I didn't do it. Well, you're part of us, so you're going to get a tongue lashing as well, so to speak. You're, you're going to hear about it. Notice verse 8. Uh, we, as far as we're able, have, have we, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. Notice sold, that's slavery. Like, we used to be slaves, y'all. We used to be slaves. And, and, and you're selling brothers that they may be sold to us? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Do you remember where we came from? Do you not remember Egypt? Do you not remember the tyranny that was on us? And then we're going to come here and God wants us to be free? And you want to enslave people again? I mean, he was mad, but I'm mad too, you know. <laughs> he says, guys, the whole purpose of coming back is that we're free. We're free. And I want you to notice something here. Your righteous anger will sometimes manifest, and you're going to have to confront somebody, and you're going to have to confront a situation. For you to sit around all the time and talk about, oh, that's bad, oh, that's rough, oh, I can't believe that, but you do nothing? You're not going to talk to nobody. You're not going to have coffee with them. You're not going to confront them and rebuke them and help them understand that you are defying the name of God in acting this way. There are a number of ways you can confront sin. Watch this. In the lives of other people. Because this is, this is him confronting. He's going to say, I got a part in this later, but this is namely him saying, I'm looking out at you and all of you and the way that you have done this. There are a number of ways you can confront this. Number one, when you hear about something, you can pray for it, can't you? You can ask for God to move mightily, and you should. Move mightily, God. Stir their heart. Remind them of your word. Convict them. You know, overwhelm them with your love. Show them how far you've brought them and the error of their way. You, you can pray, and the hound of heaven will sniff them out, we pray. You, you can do it through conversation. If need be, it may be a public rebuke. Sometimes sin that happens publicly amongst a group of people, it has to be addressed publicly in front of those same people. So look at their response. They're silent. They got nothing to say. Oftentimes, an acknowledgement of guilt is most sincerely expressed when you just be quiet. Just silent. 
Again, this is why we practice corporate confession here. This is why during our, our liturgy, during our order of service, we want to give time, space, for you to come before the holiness and the goodness and the grace and the love of our great God and acknowledge that you have failed Him, acknowledge that you have not loved people as you should, and so on and so forth. Friend, the word confess means to agree. Agree. To confess is to agree. Agree with what? Agree with God. Agree with God that what the Holy Spirit just showed you is sin. You don't justify it. You don't try to skip over it. But you actually say, God, I agree with you. What you've shown me is rebellion against you. And here's the great thing about confession for the believer. Jesus stands ready to say, child, just come back home. Jesus says, I'm your elder brother. Like, you're, you're my little brother or my little sister. The Bible talks about Jesus being our elder brother and our elder brother who is also our king and our Lord and our Savior. He says, if you'll acknowledge it, I've already forgiven it and I love you, but I'm not going to fellowship and be close to you if you're going to be close with sin and call it okay. Notice Nehemiah says, the thing you're doing, it's not good. It's not godly. It's not righteous. Notice, ought you not walk in the fear of our God? Notice the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, of our enemies. Now here we see, this is Nehemiah's motive, okay? This is why he's doing all of this. It's twofold. Number one, the fear of God. Number two, the reputation of God. This is about the fear of God, and this is about the reputation of God. See, these people had begun to fear people more than they feared God. See, when God is big to you, people are small. But when people become big to you, God will become small. You know, somebody should write a book like that. Oh, he did. Um, this book by Ed Welch, When People Are Big, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. You should read this book. When people are big and God is small. And what has happened in the lives of these people is God had become small and the thoughts of the nations around them had become big. And so they're no longer fearing God. They're not acknowledging God's godness over them. Second of all, he says the reputation of God. See, the nations were actually taunting the people of God. They were saying, look at them. Look at how they're acting. Look at what they're doing. They're, did you hear that over there as they're rebuilding those walls? They actually have their kids enslaved. See, the nations are taunting, and Nehemiah is saying, do you not understand that, that, that the nations are blaspheming God because of how you're acting? And let me tell you something, that's on some of you in this room, you won't confront situations. You won't confront people. You won't rebuke people. You won't come and sit down and have a hard chat over coffee because you think, you think that it's about them and it's about you. It's not about any of you. It's about the reputation of God and the life of this person who says they love God and want to follow God and want to fear God. And then you come to them and you say, but you're not doing those things, brother. You're not doing those things, sister. And, and I hope that you'll point it out in my life just the way I'm seeking to point it out in your life. But I got to rebuke you in Jesus' name because the reputation of God is at stake, the way in which you're handling yourself and the heathens are watching. See, confrontation is not about you. It's not about me. Confrontation is about people fearing God who say they love God and people recognizing because you are a believer, you bear the reputation of your God the way that you act and, 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 and disposition toward other people. So God commands that we live distinct. And when we see our brother or sister being unchristian, even if they're in our own family, you got to trust God. 
that he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna work all this out, but that cannot negate your responsibility to confront and rebuke a situation for the glory of God and the good of the situation. Amen? Now, verse 10, Nehemiah says, listen, I'm not squeaky clean. I and my brothers, my servants, lend, uh, and lending them money, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Notice he says, I and my brothers. He includes himself here. Then verse 11, return to them. This very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, a percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. He's calling them to repent. Repent, return. To repent is to change your mind that changes the direction of your life. Repentance starts in your mind, and then it gets to your feet. And as much as Nehemiah says, I've contributed to this in some way, give them all their stuff back. It's kind of like Zacchaeus, that wee little man. You remember when he confronts and all of a sudden they had some kind of gospel conversation and by the time he leaves, Zacchaeus is like, I done paid everybody back. It's kind of what's going on here. There's the fruit of repentance going on. And so Nehemiah calls him. You're wrong. He rebukes him. Return, repent, and notice verse 12, it leads to radical obedience. And they said, we will, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. So they repented. Then notice, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, would you give me that word? And praise the Lord. So Nehemiah 5 starts with oppression, disunity, and now it's turned into worship. Nehemiah 5 is awesome. It's horrifying. It's wonderful. And it is redeeming. Man, Nehemiah's reality and Nehemiah's rebuke. And then finally, I want you to see Nehemiah's response here. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. In other words, Nehemiah says, I was a royal appointee of the king, and I had all these royal privileges. I had a fat checkbook, okay? I had a massive credit card, and yet I emptied all that. I didn't use it. I could have, but I didn't. Notice, the former governors who were before me, this is what they did. They laid heavy burdens on the people. And took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. Now, even though it was well within Nehemiah's privilege, he did not act like them. He laid his prerogative as the second man in charge, really, of the world for the good of these people. Notice, I did not do so. Why? Here's why. Because of the fear of God. Notice, God, Nehemiah says... <clears throat> I called you to fear God earlier, but I'm not asking you to do something I'm not doing. I'm fearing God. And then notice, I also preserved in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Yet, for all this, I did not demand. That's a big word. I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Do you see Nehemiah's heart here? I don't act like ever, I don't act like other kings. So Nehemiah really, his response here is let me give you the example of how God has used me. Notice verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, that I have done for all this people. So God, I'm doing this for you. 
Let this be pleasing to you. So Nehemiah 5 is massively important in the overall story of Scripture. And let me tell you why. Because God raises up Nehemiah here to preserve these greedy people from thwarting God's purpose in bringing forth his Messiah as a Jew to save his people from their sins. So Nehemiah, watch this now, see the foreshadowing that Jesus is a better Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's the royal appointee of the king. He laid aside his privileges. He laid aside his prerogative for the sake of the people of God. 400 years later, Jesus will walk the streets of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. 400 years from now, Jesus will walk the streets of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. Jesus was the royal appointee of the Father, the king of the universe. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. Instead of Jesus seeking his own gain and his own comfort, he emptied himself. He laid aside the prerogative of God. Don't miss this. Jesus laid aside the prerogative of God in time and space so he could die in your place. See, the only thing that could possibly empower you to not be selfish and to not seek your own ambition and to not be consumeristic and to not seek your own wealth, the only thing that could motivate you is to look to Jesus, to see how he lived, to see how he emptied himself. When you see that, it becomes more than a theological truth that you read in a systematic theology book, and it actually becomes something that you want to embody in your own life. Nehemiah is a great leader. He's a great governor, but friends, we have a better one. Jesus is not just the governor of a city. He rules and reigns over the nations, and he will reign forever. So as we look at Nehemiah as our example, let's not get far from seeing that, yes, Nehemiah is our example. Yes, there is a lot to learn from him, but Jesus is our not just example, he's actually our Savior King. So may our great God, friends, May he keep us united as we do good for the glory of God and the good of this congregation and the good of our world. Do nothing, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there it is, Nehemiah's reality, Nehemiah's rebuke, and Nehemiah's response, all pointing to the Lord Jesus as the one who would come and save his people from their sin. So, Father, we thank you for this truth. And just for your son and all that he is and all that he has done, I pray and ask that we, God, would recognize that this is a, a, a gravity moment. I pray, God, that by your spirit that you would create hunger in us to model and embody Jesus to one another. We thank you for Nehemiah and the picture in, in so many different ways of his life and the life of your people and Nehemiah 5 and how important it is, God, how you used it to keep the mission of the Messiah going forth. And would you help us this week, Lord, to fix our hearts and fix our minds and fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who came on our behalf, the one who lived in our place, died in our place, emptied himself, substituted himself. And Lord, would you create in us a greater love for our Pleasant Valley Church family? 
Would you give us a greater love for those who are under the pangs of injustice in a number of different ways? Would you, by your spirit, teach us how to be righteously angry? God, there's some situations in this room right now, families in this room right now, and all is not well. And all will not be well until conversations are had. Confrontations take place. And I pray, God, that when they do, that it would be the fear of your name, the reputation of your name, that would drive all that we do and all that we say. Oh, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we thank you for our PVC family. What a wonderful body of believers you have placed us in. And I'm so grateful to serve, to love, to care, and to walk with these dear brothers and sisters of mine and your dear children. We pray all of this, Father, in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet, please, and let's respond by singing.